welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Hey, adventurers, welcome to episode 88 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is just Patrick, and today it really is just Patrick. This is going to be a bit of a different episode as our dear sweet king has taken ill. In fact, uh, I think he'd certainly appreciate it if you're listening, if you hit us up on Facebook, find a way to message us, shoot us a PM, let him know how terrible this episode is without him. I think that'd just about make his day and hopefully have him feeling better. Nevertheless, uh, it is going to be me today flying solo. I'm going to try and keep things moving along nice and smoothly. Some of the podcasts that I listen to are actually solo. One of my favorites being uh, Broken Meeple, Luke Hector. If, uh, if you haven't listened to Broken Meeple and you're looking for something new, I think that's a pretty good one. But today's episode is going to be good nevertheless. I do have Scott joining me for the review. We did that segment already. The rest of the episode we're going to record later in the week after his big weekend that we're going to hear about next episode. But again, Scott is taken ill. So today we've got a good bit to talk about. We don't normally do a news segment. We just talk about some of the things that have piqued our interest at the beginning of the episode. And man, I got a lot to talk about this episode, but I'm going to lead it off with all play. Board Game Tables, uh, which has become all play. They got a contest going right now, and you can win a Jasper table or, get this, an entire game room makeover. Think like reality TV show. You remember the old, like, move that bus crap where, like, they'd have people stay in a hotel and they'd redo their whole house? It's like that for your game room. Their description, filmed like a reality TV show, we're going to put you in a hotel for two days and then go to your house and completely redo your game room with a final reveal and everything. Your new game room will include a new table, chairs, shelves, games, wall art, depending on what your room needs, could include new flooring, paint, lighting, and more. Get this adventure's deadline, March 23rd. This table can be won in the USA, Canada, and Europe. The game room, though, that's going to be the US Lower 48 only. Very cool stuff from All Play. I put a link in the show notes. Just check the info on your podcast player app and scroll down, and you're going to find how you can enter to win free. Next item, we recently did Kyperium. Ryan joined me for an episode where we talked all about Kyperium, which is live on Kickstarter. I'm actually super excited for this one. I messaged Matt after and uh, did, in fact, get a prototype copy. We've got a big meetup March 26th at the Four Horsemen in Robinson. That's like just north of Pittsburgh. If you're local, we hope you join us. It's going to be from 12 o'clock to 8 o'clock. But nevertheless, I messaged Matt and I said, hey, man, Kyperium's really, really good. And it's a quick enough game. I think it'd be awesome to demo that. You're going to have late pledges and whatnot. You know what? We got our copy in. I've set it up on the table, got some pictures. I've been playing it. Just a fantastic game. Go back, listen to that episode. It's still live on Kickstarter. Level Up highly recommends. Little correction from last episode. I mentioned that the uh, the Automa, I thought that came from Euphoria. I know that's a Stonemaier Games thing. And I was like, oh, okay, that was their first one that had a solo mode. It was uh, Euphoria, right? No, it turns out it uh, comes from the Italian word for automaton. And they chose this word because it was first used in... Yes, Viticulture, which is set in Italy. So Automa comes from Stonemaier Games. That comes from Viticulture. Let's talk about some games that have been announced that have me all kinds of fired up. Let's start right here. A game that I don't know that we've ever really talked about on the show, Zombicide. Zombicide White Death 
has been announced. So from comicbook.com, a sequel to the medieval fantasy spinoff of Zombicide is coming to Kickstarter soon. Simon revealed Zombicide White Death, a sequel to their popular fantasy game line Zombicide Black Plague. Details about the new Zombicide are scarce, but the game will have a winter motif with icy zombies and other threats. The allusions to Game of Thrones are strong, with the setting of the new game being Wintergrad instead of Winterfell. You know, I, we really haven't touched on Zombicide, I think, in, in the two two plus years that we've been doing this, but it's a game that I think both Scott and I love. I know he's got a copy of Black Plague. I have Black Plague. I got the Invader. Uh, they had the Invader version that was set in space. It's one that I can set up with my brother and Mike, and like each of us will take two characters. We'll play with six and just blast through that game. It's so much fun going scenario to scenario. We've had game days where that's all we've done is four scenarios of Zombicide. I'm not tired of it. You know, it, they keep coming out with these new spinoffs. They have that... Um, uh, Night of the Living Dead. They did Zombicide Night of the Living Dead. They had the Wild West theme going on. The space one that I mentioned as well. They got the the, the present day. They've got Remorgue. They got the mall. I mean, so many different ways that they've, well, let's face it, printed money with this system. But you know what? It's a system that I like. And it's one that I'm happy to play. I want to play the Wild West theme. I, You know, you throw Wild West in a game and I'm on board. Black Plague is probably their most popular version of the game. It's the one that... So so originally when Zombicide came out, there were some rules with like when you're rolling into a crowd, let's say that you're in a crowd and I'm going to shoot at that crowd and I want to hit those zombies and clear them up for you. Well, the problem was the misses uh, would hit the other player first. So like you would end up doing more damage to your own, like to your teammate. So it wasn't actually worth actually doing the shot and trying to run away was just a disaster. They cleaned that up. They cleaned that up in Black Plague, plus they gave it like a medieval theme. This is a case to me of more is better. You know, Zombicide Black Plague, we're going back probably, what, five, six, seven years since that thing's been printed. They've had multiple Zombicides since. They've been able to refine the system. I'm very intrigued by White Death. I want to see more. Another favorite game of mine, Nemesis, has announced Nemesis Retaliation. So let's take this one off of BGG this time. Players will take on the roles of highly trained Marines entering the alien nest with strict orders and the most advanced tools available. But will they be well prepared enough to face the unrelenting horde that awaits them? In Nemesis Retaliation, the tension is higher than ever as players must survive against overwhelming odds and the possibility of betrayal is at every step. As the third installment of the series, Nemesis Retaliation builds upon the already successful Nemesis DNA and brings even more thrilling gameplay, with more aliens to fight and new tools to help you deal with them. This game promises to be a fresh experience for both fans of the series and new players alike. So back in episode 50, we did Nemesis and we did Nemesis Lockdown. We did them together, and that's partially because I knew that Scott didn't have the, the greatest couple of plays of Lockdown. I loved it. I thought Lockdown's better. I like that elevator mechanic. But you know what? It was just this past weekend I played Nemesis at my brother's. We added the Carnomorphs expansion, and I don't think I've ever played it and not enjoyed myself. I've had times where I just got my butt kicked. Uh, and this wasn't one of those times. I actually got off the ship. Mike and I shared the victory. Uh, I got to an escape pod, as did he. I had what I think is one of the easier objectives, collecting seven items and then just bolting. You don't have to worry about where the ship goes. You just need to hit an escape pod. Survive, get seven items. That's all I had to do. That's all I did. Still, every time you play this game, it tells a story. You know, we talk cinematic moments. We had an episode where we referenced uh, when, when you can envision what's happening and it's like a movie. Retaliation, they're saying you're highly trained Marine. You're going into uh, into the nest, right? I picture Alien 2. This uh, aliens, I don't know. I, I don't know what they call them. It's Alien 2 for 
for all I, I know. This feels kind of like that's what they're doing. The first nemesis felt a little bit more like the first alien. You know, you're on this ship and there's this thing awakening. This feels like they're going to do the this second one. What I do want to see from Retaliation, though, is a little bit more different. One thing that I liked about Lockdown was that they changed it up and that you play a little bit with the power. Where where has power? When are you going to be in the dark? The aliens do meaner things when you're in the dark. you got that elevator to mess with movement. You can hunker down. Basically, it's cryosleep, but they put you in a room, but it's not a guarantee. Like how in the first one, the, uh, the, the, the ship, it still had to make it to Earth. In lockdown, you needed the corporation to not come in and just wax you anyway because they're worried that you might be contaminated, right? There were some subtle changes, but overall it felt like, okay, they just, they just took Nemesis and added two things. That's fine. It works. I want to see Retaliation take Nemesis and change it up a little. Give me that same DNA. And it says that's what they're going to do. But I want a little bit more than, okay, you you just, you, you're playing with power in the rooms, right? It was so much the same game. You still have, okay, you have character objectives. You have your personal, you have your corporate. You can get out here. You can do an escape here. In, uh, in lockdown, it was like go out those hatches that are shipping the mail or whatever the hell they were doing. Or you can hunker down in the room. Uh, and there just wasn't a lot to differentiate the two games. Thematically, one you're on a ship, one you're in a base, eh, they're both sci-fi, right? This is guaranteed more sci-fi, more alien theme. I want to see how it's different, and I'm excited to see what they do. I got two more before we talk about some recent plays. A game coming out called Forge. I was chatting with my buddy Wesley, and he said, you know what, I can send you some audio. I want to tell you guys a little bit about Forge. Let's take a little break here, and I'm going to kick it over to Wesley and hear about Forge. Hi, Patrick and Scott. I'm excited to share the latest box of entertainment coming from Fundamental Games with you and the Adventurers. Forge puts each player into the role of a master blacksmith during medieval times. They each have a forge to run, which involves sending assistance on errands, gathering resources, acquiring contracts, upgrading their forge, and of course, forging wonderful goods. This is a one-to-four-player strategic competitive board game that features a handful of tried-and-true mechanics that blend together thematically. These include worker placement, tableau building, resource management, set collection, and more. The game features beautiful player forge boards, a city game board, a multitude of cards, a series of thick wood forge upgrade tokens, and wooden hammers for each player. If you enjoy worker placement Euro-style games, this one is fun to play and is going to look great on the table. Forge is launching on Kickstarter on March 21st and will be in backers' hands before the end of this year. Check out our webpage to see the prototype of the game and follow our page to get a reminder when it's available. Hey, thanks, Wesley, for that audio. Uh, first thing I got to say about this, the uh, on Board Game Geek, you always get that, like, underneath the title of the game, you get a brief description of what the game is, and it doesn't get much more generic than what they put here. A strategic game of medieval forging. Uh, Wesley, you got to change that, man. That, that doesn't do much for flavor. I'm telling you what, Adventures, check this one out. Look at the box cover. It's got sweet cover art. Components look fantastic. I'm clicking through this thing. There's one picture. It shows all these little, like, symbols on cylinders on one of the player boards. Cards off to the side. It's got these little hammer, like, I guess they're recent. Maybe they're resources. Maybe they're, like, actions that you can use. But there's a board that shows other player colors. Components look good. I like the sound of the game. I can't wait to see what they got going on when this thing hits Kickstarter. 
little sip of the uh, the coffee there. We've got to keep our voice fresh. I'm enjoying uh, Tanzanian Peaberry, which is one of the coffees that Ryan sent to me. And uh, man, I tell you what, this is good stuff. <laughs> Last thing I want to touch before we get into recent plays, Earth Tops the Hotness. I was really excited to see this one. This one came from Inside Up Games, our good friend Connor Magui. We talked about it in episode 52. We touched on Earth. We gave the full review. Go back there. What we said stands. I even re-listened to it. I think the reason why it's topping the hotness, first of all, first and foremost, it got this review from uh, from the Dice Tower. They do their, I don't know if it's four squares or, or what they're calling it now. I, you know what? Spoiler. I don't watch I don't watch videos. I don't watch Dice Tower videos. I have nothing against them. I really don't. I think they're uh, they're engaging. I listened to the podcast when they had the podcast, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I just I can't bring myself to sit and watch someone talk about games. I like podcasts. I can sit in the car. I absorb it when I'm working, etc. It's it's my jam. Earth topped the hotness because the Dice Tower had a video where they were talking about it and the four people, like I saw the screenshot that Inside Up Games shared of there's the four people from uh, from Dice Tower and underneath it is like 9, 9.5, 9.5, 10 and they're like early on calling it game of the year, right? And anytime that happens, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this shot right now. Adventures, you heard it here first. I think within, give me a year. Within a year, this is going to be a top 25 game. It's going to be a top 25 game. And the reason I say that is because that is exactly what happened when Dice Tower hyped up Ark Nova. That's the exact same thing. And quite frankly, there are similarities here. I didn't, I didn't write anything up. So off the cuff, you know, I've been, I've been noticing this trend with, uh, with some of the more popular games, some of the more fun games, games that I enjoy too. And it starts with Terraforming Mars. And it includes Ark Nova. It includes Wingspan. Now it includes Earth. What I'm Dog Park? Let's let's not forget Dog Park. I, I think that one's maybe a, a little lesser known, a little more under the radar. You know, not as big a company pub pushing that one. But games that have a gigantic deck of unique cards with simple rule sets. Now, Terraforming Mars's rule set, uh, Ark Nova's rule set, it's a little bit heavier than something like Dog Park, Wingspan, and, and for that matter, Earth. Earth has like four actions that you can select from, and you either take an action or you're following what somebody else did. It's remarkably simple, but it's different every time because you have that gigantic deck of cards. I'm telling you what, right now, that is the recipe. If not for all gamers, at least that's the recipe to get yourself a nine- Nine or ten score on Dice Tower, and that that alone, you're going to sell games. You get a good score there, you're going to move games. All you got to do, make a, make a game with a gigantic deck of cards. Here I am being the designer, uh, coming up with how you're going to sell millions of games. I'm insulting literally every uh, designer and publisher out there. No, for real though, it, it is a trend that I'm noticing, and they tend to be very good games. I can't think of many of that style. Big deck of unique cards and easy rule set that haven't been successful. If you can think of one, shoot me a message. I'd, I'd be curious to hear, hear of what it is. Another sip there. Uh, let me catch my breath. When we get back, we're gonna talk a couple recent plays. Hey King, you remember we talked about Factory 42? Yeah, you, you seem to really like that one. Heck yeah, I did. And we even got a level up promo card in their Kickstarter last year. I, I remember uh, a bit of level up for the show getting that promo from Dragon Dawn. And you know they did Grey Eminence. And Michelle as well. Uh, we've done a bit for them, actually. Well, now they're going to do a bit for our listeners. Did you manage to get another promo code? 
Oh, you bet, King. 10% off this one is using promo code Level Up on their website. Now, this is for anything on their site. Mm-hmm. White Hat, Gray Eminence, Factory 42, Beyond the Rift, everything. Even the giant Dungeon Crawler Perdition's Mouth Abyssal Rift. Everything is 10% off with promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P. So, if I'm seeking a new adventure, where does I journey to use this mythical promo code spell? Two easy ways to do it. You can click on the logo for Dragon Dawn on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com or get on over to ddpgames.com and click shop. I, I Easily, I gotta tell you, one of my favorite things we're able to do with this show is find some ways to help adventurers save some money and score some loot. So get on with it, adventurers. ddpgames.com, click shop, promo code L-E-V-E-L-U-P. Level up. All right, Adventures, let's talk some recent plays. I've got two for you today. The first one is Rise, a 2022 game designed by Remo Canzadori, Marco Pranzo, and published by DLP Games, or Capstone, I guess, depending on where you live. Rise is a game that's all about managing your city and its population through the use of tracks. And you might recall, prior to PAX, we started talking about games we were getting hyped up for. This is one that I was totally looking forward to because it's got 10 tracks in the game, which might turn you off. But to me, the logic was like, if Beyond the Sun was Tech Tree the game and I like it, and Tapestry is a version of like Tracks the game that I like, then obviously this one, Rise, 10 tracks, Tracks the board game. It obviously caught my attention. So a little bit of theme from BGG. In Rise, you assume the responsibility for the economic and social development of a city. There are not many limits to your possibilities. On various tracks, you can influence how best to provide for your citizens' well-being, whether through culture, science, or political relations. But all of this can be achieved only in accordance with a respect for conservation of the environment and the satisfaction of the population. Okay, how does this work out on the board? To start, uh, as mentioned, you have 10 track boards that you're going to set up on the table, and each of them look a little bit different, have their own color, they're easy to differentiate. So no, it doesn't just look like a spreadsheet sprawling out across your table. Each player puts a marker at the start of each track, and each player gets some coins and a factory token, and basically you're set up and running. Now, the primary mechanism by which you're pulling the necessary levers to ascend these tracks is through the use of action cards and event cards, which are going to be separated into, uh, what, three different eras. At the start of a round, you're going to create an alternating row of action card and then event card and then action card and then event card until you have four of each. All Well, no, you have four action cards, three events in between, but they're all face up. It's known information at the start of a round. The event cards are kind of what you'd expect. Like when you hit them, everybody gets a coin or each player goes up the politics track, right? Simple interactions with the game. Uh, not much to write home about. The action cards, though, that's where you're going to find the meat in Rise. In turn order... Each player takes their one factory piece and they put it under one of the events. Then the round's going to be carried out. Action number one. Anybody got a token under there? Do what it says. Now the event, get a coin, whatever it might be. Then action number two. Who's got their factory under there? Carry out what it says, right? And so on. So as you might imagine, the action cards, that's how you're going to move up the various tracks in the game. And each one has two options. A little example might be that if you placed on this action card, you can advance one space on the bank track. But if you pay two coin, you can move up on the bank track and the conservation track. Now, when you move up tracks, you're going to hit various points, at which point you'll receive a bonus, like some extra coin or an extra bump on another track, right? Uh, oftentimes, it's deciding between uh, this track or that track, you know, other ones that you might want to go up to. 
Two of these tracks specifically, Conservation and Satisfaction, they play a slightly bigger role in the grand scheme of things. These tracks, you begin in the center of them, and you can go positive or negative. At the end of each round, you'll stand to gain a benefit or pay a penalty based on where you're at on those tracks. Each era, eras one, two, and three, last for four rounds, a round being those cards that were set up at the top, and after the end of the third era, there's some final scoring, and the high score wins the game. So first up, 10 tracks. This sounds intimidating. How complex is this? It's actually remarkably easy. There's 10 symbols to learn because you got 10 different tracks, right? But they're pretty intuitive and like, wait, what's this symbol mean? Oh, it's on that track right there. What's this symbol mean? Oh, it's on that track over there. So pretty easy to learn, easy to play. And your turn in any given round is basically take your one factory, place it under one card, and you'll be carrying out that one action. Sometimes there are triggers, but the triggers are always going to be moving up the same tracks. Well, wait a minute, the same tracks? Is this game going to be same? Is this going to feel like the same thing? Well, much like my pizza promo cassette tape for Ninja Turtles circa 1991, each track tile has an A side and a B side, so you can change things up a little bit. And I think that they're meant to be played so that you're using all of the A sides or all of the B, but like, you know, we like to live on the wild side. I don't see why you couldn't uh, mess, you know, some A's, some B's, etc. So, does it live up to the hype? This is one that I was jonesing for before PAX, saw it there, I almost bought it from Capstone, it was like 40 bucks, I just didn't pull the trigger. Teacher Ryan had it for sale. He gave me a steal of a deal on it. And I was like, man, this thing's getting to the table. Does it live up to the hype? No, not at all. In fact, I was learning this one. I'm playing this with a gang a few times thinking, you know what? I'm going to play it together with Scott. We're going to give this thing the 8-bit breakdown. I just got to learn. I got to play it with Brennan. Got to play it with Mike. I just don't want to play it anymore. And I, I think I know what the issue is. All right. Take Tapestry. That's been the track game to this point, but it's not. Yeah, you're going to trigger your actions based on where you're at on each of the four tracks, but more importantly than like the moving up a track is the implication of the movement. As in, you bump up here, which lets me move this other marker up, which lets me place a building, which completes a 3x3 three three square that gives me a resource. That's fun. In Rise, the chaining often stops at gain a coin or two. You know, like none of the tracks are going to do anything that feels like, oh man, that's a big payoff. Some of the tracks you hit the top and it's like, it's worth four points. Uh, ultimately, there is a lot of jockeying on those two tracks that I mentioned earlier, the conservation and the satisfaction tracks. And it seems like that's the end of the tunnel in a lot of these uh, chaining of actions, right? When you're bumping up tracks, but what's the end goal? I moved to the right once on the conservation track. Okay, well, that's productive. That's going to help me win the game, but it doesn't feel the same as like placing that giant rocket ship warehouse thing and, and getting to, to trigger all these actions and play a new tapestry card like what we have in the previous tracks game, Tapestry. On top of all that, the theme is entirely abstract. Like this is as abstract as can be aside from like the names of some of the event cards. Like, you could have given the, all of the tracks, like, names that pertain to a sports stadium. And you could have called the game Franchise. And it would have worked, right? This is a game that I think is going to connect with some folks. Uh, maybe in its simplicity. Maybe in that it's a relatively short time frame. Easy to pick up, easy to learn. But for me, unfortunately, it just fell completely flat. One of the most popular games in the hobby, and the oldest in the BGG Top 100, is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. 
Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm -hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, -E -E the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. All right, thanks for letting me chop up the episode a little bit with these commercials, and uh, I like to hear Scott's voice, so it's kind of nice to get him in there. All right, we've got time for one more recent play, then we're going to get Scott in the episode. Why don't we talk a little bit about a game called Yak, a 2022 game by Michael Liu, published by Pretzel Games. Let's talk a little bit about yaks, because who knows anything about them? Turns out they're the highest-dwelling mammal in the world, living at altitudes up to 20,000 feet. Get this, their life expectancy. Life expectancy of a yak is about 20 years. Their thick woolly coats protect them in temperatures lower than negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I have no idea what that comes to Celsius for those that aren't in America. You know what? I'm going to bring back Kelvin. I want to start converting to Kelvin. So when people walk into the bank and they're like, oh, it's a nice day out there, I can be like, oh, yeah, it's 182 Kelvin. And just see if it sticks. Yaks can swim in almost frozen waters without reducing their body temperatures too much. I thought that's pretty fascinating. Neat animal. Adventures, you know how I like my toy factoring games. That's what drew me to Yak. I saw it set up on a table at PAX. I do the ordering for the local comic shop, and I saw Yak on the list at the warehouse, and I was like, you know what, we're going to get a copy of this in, and uh, turns out I'm the one that ended up buying it. So what drew me in is a table presence, namely four big plastic carts being pulled by four plastic Yaks. Uh, yak stick plastic... Never mind. Uh, and the resources that you need, uh, plus the blocks that you're going to be building with, they're all housed in the carts that are being pulled by the yaks. The wheels on these carts actually spin. Uh, so charm right out the gates. And it's probably the reason that I bought this game. So what's happening in a game of yak? Ultimately, it's to build a pyramid of stone as that's how you're going to score your points. Like you need a base of five blocks and then four on top of it, then three, you know, uh, like a pyramid, a two dimensional pyramid. A triangle. Whatever. You know what I mean. Leave me alone. Uh, the stones come in like seven different colors plus wild and they're all stored in this big opaque bag. At the start of play, you're going to set up your yak carts and three blocks are pulled randomly from the bag and put on the back of each of the four yak carts on the board. I should point out it's four if you have four player, three with three player. The number of carts are going to vary based on the player count. Plus, you're going to take resources and put them in the back of their appropriate carts. They're meat, bread, and milk and they're laser cut wooden pieces shaped like what they are. Again charming. Mm. 
Each player has three cards that depict the actions that they can take on their turn. So simultaneously, everybody selects an action, reveals it, and then they carry out in turn order. Typically, you're going to be trading resources with the card that is in front of you. You have your little, like, player area. It's your, what do they call it, a yurt? I think it's your yurt in the game. Whatever card is in front of your yurt, that's the one that you can trade with. That's how you're going to get your stones to build your pyramid. So if you take a stone, you draw a new one from the bag, and you add it to that cart. You can also select to take all the resources of one type from the back of that cart, which can feel pretty cool when you're getting like six or seven. At the end of the round, the yak carts are going to rotate to the next player. So in a four-player game, all four carts are wheeled along the path to a new player, and the next round begins. You play until someone finishes their pyramid. And then there's one more round. And by finish, I mean like they get that one more block, that fine, the fifth row that only has one block on it. Then final scoring is going to take place. It's dictated by scorecards that were drawn at the start of play. But scoring is basically based on having blocks and groups, patterns and alignments as shown on the scorecards. Last thing, there's a couple neat blocks that can end up coming out of the bag, namely the wild color, which helps you with your scoring, and the white block, which is meant to represent fog. Remember, high altitude. If you draw a white block, you set it aside and you draw a new one. What's it going to do? the carts switch direction. And from there on, they rotate in the opposite direction until the end of that round, or at least until someone draws another fog block. Again, play until the pyramid's finished. High score wins. All right, so let's start here. Complexity. Not a complex game. This thing's just not that hard. I think most kids are going to be able to handle it. Think like eight and up, maybe nine and up. You throw in that toy factor, they're going to have that want to. Let's talk grown-ups. Are grown-ups going to be able to play this? You know what? Yes, it's a simple resource collection game. You have a little bit of like spatial relations when you're building your pyramid. You do have to keep those scorecards in mind. It can be as challenging as you make it. You can play it willy-nilly. Like, just pick a block out. I'm just going to put it somewhere. You know, I think this works. This looks like it works for that card. Or you can really look at those cards and really try and focus in on those goals. Where's the best place that I can put this? What's the best trade that I can make right now? Complexity of the game is not complicated. Let's talk about some of the things that I like. You've got, first of all, charm, charm. The game is cute. People are going to walk past it. They're going to know what you're playing. I had this set up in Nikki's basement. Man, people were walking by like, oh, what is that? What's that game? What do you do in this one? It is cool. It's colorful. The blocks are colorful. Everything about it is just eye-catching. I like that. That doesn't mean that the gameplay is going to be great. The gameplay is simple. It does, you know, if you're looking for a heavy game, this isn't it. It feels a lot like, you know what, I just take a, I'm going to trade for blocks. The next play is obvious. Sometimes the plays can be obvious. This cart has uh, six meat in it or nine meat. In it. I'm just going to trade for all the resources. Sometimes the plays uh, play themselves. Sometimes it can feel a little bit scripted, but that's not always the case. And frankly, there's only one nitpick that I have with this game, and it's that the big bag of blocks that you're drawing from, that big opaque bag, it's just not quite big enough. Like, if you wanted to hold it up and, like, dip your hand in and shuffle them around, you're going to have blocks coming out. I wish it was a tiny bit bigger. Kind of a minor nitpick. It really didn't affect our play. You just set the bag on the table, or you close your eyes whenever you reach in and pull out some blocks. But typically, you're pulling off the top because the ones at the bottom, they're way in the bottom. You know, I don't know why. I like to be able to take the bag. In a game that has a bag, think Quacks of Quedlinburg, or we recently talked about Wonderland's War, I like to be able to hold the top of the bag closed and shake it. Uh, never mind that, I, you know, I'm sure it does something for the randomization, but like if you set this bag up at the beginning of the game and the white blocks are all at the bottom, 
they're going to stay at the bottom because you can't shuffle up the blocks. You're not going to be able to shake it and jumble them up or get your hand in and wiggle your fingers around looking for the right one because they'll all spill out. Minor complaint, but you know what? It is a thing. All in all, it's a game that I'm really happy to have played. Can I recommend buying it? You know what? It's 45, 50 bucks most places. That feels a little bit high for a gamer, right? You're listening to a board game podcast. I'm not going to recommend this for you. But if you sometimes have some younger kids at your game day, somebody brings along their uh, their, their preteens, and sometimes they want to get in a game, and you're sick and tired of playing, I don't know, Exploding Kittens, this is something that maybe they'll be able to play and, and get the hang of and feel like, hey, I'm playing something a little more gamery. And that is Yak from Pretzel Games. Well, this certainly feels weird not having Scott to um, say anything. Time for the top 100. We're going to start with debuts. We have Trois or Troyes, which I feel like I mentioned last episode. It's showing at number 100. So uh, either I have the same script here as last time or it's bouncing in and out of the top 100, which sometimes games do. Something will go in and then people pump the rating for the new or the hot thing went in and other people come in and bomb it like we're seeing in our top 10 trends. Brass Birmingham back to number one. Last episode when we recorded, Gloomhaven had retaken the spot. Well, Brass has not only retaken it, Gloomhaven has fallen to number three as Pandemic Legacy now is uh, is retaining that two spot that it had for the longest time. War of the Rings second edition is up to number eight. Star Wars Rebellion down to number nine. Those are the top 10 trends. Let's talk new highest peaks games that are higher than they've ever been. Brass Birmingham, of course, at number one. War of the Ring at number eight. The Crew Mission Deep Sea at number 35. Great Western Trail, second edition, 41. I'm really curious to see how high that that can climb. Cascadia, number 48. Pandemic Legacy, season zero at 52. Sleeping Gods at 61. Josh keeps telling me to get back to this thing, and I just can't get over that play that, you know, Scott and I, we demoed it at PAX, and the teacher was just not into it didn't didn't really know how to play the game so he was doing the whole like read the rule book i'm sorry you sign up for a demo of a game at a convention you're expecting someone to teach you the game that knows it inside and out we didn't have that we sat down and we basically had to do a rule book and that was not what we were looking to do and it just it it bombed the whole game for me. I got to get back to it. Kanban EVs at number 63. Grand Austria Hotel. Yeah, look at this. Up to number 70. You know what? At this rate, if we just wait about 20 years, Grand Austria Hotel is going to be number one. Cthulhu. Death May Die. Number 81. Beyond the Sun. Number 88. Obsession, which I have a diatribe for Obsession coming up next episode, is at number 89. And The Search for Planet X, number 96. Happy birthdays. It's been one year since Arc Nova has graced the top top 100 charts with its animal goodness. The Crew Mission Deep Sea, one year as well. Marvel Champions the Card Game, three years. Whoo, we made it to the end of the all-pat portion of the episode. Thank you, adventurers, for putting up with me. I hope I'm moderately entertaining. Dung Merchant Will Brown's going to join me after the 8-bit breakdown of G.I. Joe, the deck-building game. Hey, adventurers. It's time now for us to take a look at our main game for 8-Bit Breakdown, the G.I. Joe deck building game. This was released in 2021, published by Renegade Games, and designed by T.C. Petty III. The G.I. Joe deck building game is, uh, well, the deck building game. 
In this game, you will be playing as one of the G.I. Joe commanders, Duke, Snake Eyes, Scarlet, and all the rest, and leading your small team to, to defeat the powers of Cobra. You will begin with a basic deck of unnamed Joes and recruit more powerful vehicles, futuristic items, and ever more resilient named G.I. Joe characters. At the start of your turn, you will reveal the story mission awaiting you. These cards have a description of what is happening and how you can defeat this Cobra plan. There is also a number that you must meet or beat with the dice roll. More on that in a minute. Oh, and wait, there are also complications. When the mission is revealed, many times there are complications that will spread your team thin. These could be anything from one of the powerful Cobra officers joining the battle to a distraction to lead you away from the main mission. Looking at your hand of cards, you will need to commit Joes to a mission. Each mission has a skill that will help you defeat it. Could be explosives, could be marksmanship, or any other number of skills. Looking at your Joes in your hand, there may be some that have that skill that will improve your chances of defeating this mission. Next to that skill will be a number. Remember the dice I mentioned? Each Joe will be able to roll a die to meet the number listed on the mission. Now, if your Joe has a skill listed on the mission, you can roll extra dice up to the number listed. So now, instead of three Joes and three dice, you may be going in with three Joes and seven dice. Nice. Now, no self-respecting Joe is going to go into battle without their trusty vehicle. Vehicles that you purchase during the recruit phase can help you defeat the mission. Some missions have a type of vehicle shown on their card. If your vehicle matches that type, you may be given a bonus. Now, all that's left to do is roll the dice and see if you were successful. If you were, good on you. You will get some sort of reward, usually decreasing the threat meter, getting ever closer to defeat. If you lose, well, your ascent toward peace is only going to get steeper. After you go through the battle, it is now time to recruit to the effort and choose equipment, vehicles, and soldiers to bulk up your deck to defeat Cobra. You are faced with three chapters to complete, with interludes that allow you to make this as easy or as difficult as you wish. This gives you a good feeling how the game works, so let's get to the war room and see how the battle is going. It's G.I. Joe against Cobra, the enemy fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe! Hey, thanks, King, for the walkthrough of today's 8-Bit Breakdown Review Game, G.I. Joe, the deck-building game. Wait, this one's been on tap for a while, hasn't it? Yes, it has. This is one of those ones that whenever I saw it coming out, I'm like, oh, man, they are just grabbing my wallet, forcibly taking it out of my pants, and putting it down on the countertop waiting for me to spend my hard-earned <laughs> shekels for this. Renegade Games forced its way into your pants. Uh, <laughs> now that you put it that way, it just sounds creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Adventures, as you know, we like to review our games in the 8-Bit Breakdown. We're going to look at eight facets of this game, starting with art and components and finishing it off with Was It Fun and Who's It For? Art and components, we've got a deck builder here. So cards and cards and cards. Mm -hmm. Components aren't going to be much beyond that. There's a couple tiles in there, but art. This comes from the comic book, I understand, not the cartoon series. Is that right? 
Yes, yes. There's uh, there's a lot from the comic books, yes. Is it all comic books? Well, the artwork is inconsistent. You've got some from the interiors of the comic book. Okay. You've got some from the exteriors, from the, co- uh, the covers. J. Scott Campbell is one of the greatest artists that did G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. It just so much energy in those pictures. And you have some of those, and then you have some of them by Joe Schmedley that's just penciling the interiors that doesn't have that same oomph. So it's really back and forth with the type of artwork you get on this. I wish they would have kind of tended to go all one way or all one other way. Okay, okay. See, I, I felt it tied all to, I felt it all tied together clean enough. But yeah, there is some inconsistency. And and you know what? Some of the starting leaders, I thought like, why are they zoomed in all the way yeah. into just? And you can tell what's happening is they had a frame of the comic. And there was a lot of stuff going on, but they just needed that one guy. So it's like a zoomed in, here's their face. Uh, and but, but that said, I want to say 95% of the artwork is awesome. It's like, you remember those blister packs that would have your little three-inch or four-inch G.I. Oh, Joe? In yeah. It, and you turn it, it's got like the image in the background and they're like, you know, they, they're, they've got a gun blast and they're riding a snowmobile. Oh, it's that sort of thing. And it captures a lot of the theme. Let's get to uh, bit number two, theme and immersion, because we got a deck building game. And notoriously, ever since Dominion, deck builders kind of carry that themeless tag. What do you think? Theme and immersion. Well, I think this is where this game shines. You are America's defenders against the forces of Cobra. All the usual suspects are here. Duke, Scarlet, Flint, Destro, Major Blood, all of them. This game allows you to play through the cartoon episodes that you remember as a kid. And I loved those Mm -hmm. things when I was growing up. And then the immersion comes when you're going out on a mission. Each mission has a success role that you must beat. But just like in a cartoon, you aren't just going to send out any everyday Joe. You need to make sure you send out the absolute best of the best on this mission. Bring Bazooka along if you need explosives. Yeah. Uh, how about Dowtone if you need stealth or tracker? This I loved. It was just so much fun getting all those different characters in there. But wait, you can't go on a mission without a vehicle. So, of course, you need to make sure you have one of those in order to complete the, the mission. This adds the little bit of strategy when you play because there are different missions that you can go on that you'll do better if you are in a plane. There might be ones that you do better on if you're in a tank. So you Mm -hmm. need to plan what you have out there, what characters you're taking to give you the best chance of beating that mission that you're going on. Absolutely. It's a game where when you're done, like as things are happening, you can tell the story of what's happening. Like, okay, who's going on the, you know, who's going to get in the helicopter? Mm-hmm. You're sending this guy. I'm sending, I'm going to send rock and roll. You know, and there you could like picture the helicopter taking off, going towards the base. Like for a card game, it creates <laughs> a bunch of like cinematic scenarios. Like, like you can envision what's happening and, and the colorful art, the action going on in those cards. It makes it feel like, oh, th- this is ripped right out of a comic book or right out of the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Very thematic. Maybe the most thematic card game I can remember playing. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. This is one that I really gravitated towards. I mean, next to the old Star Wars CCG. This is mm-hmm. one of those games that I really do enjoy the card game aspect of it. 
Now, we're sitting at the shop. This, oh, geez, this is almost a year ago. And I want to say Stephen, was, he had on like reruns of the G.I. Joe cartoon. Oh, you're you going to bring this, this up. They would have random Joes on the screen. and be like, Scott, who's that one? You, you did not miss a single one. You knew them all. I know, I know. And I don't know how. I didn't have any of the toys or anything growing up. I just loved G.I. Joe. It was great. How do you know them all? Like, I feel like, I feel like it's difficult to know. Hey, you know what? That's one of those little areas of my mind that, hey, I could add the cure cancer there. But no, I had to remember that Wild Bill uh, flew the helicopter, the Cobra helicopter. Oh, uh, I had to remember God. that Blink so was in there. So fighting and weapons are half the battle. I'm surprised that you know. Oh, I'm giving hey, you the hey, low-hanging hey. fruit. Come on. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. But I mean, hey, trust me. This is 8-Bits. I got it in here. Trust me. <laughs> Not a very complex game. Bit number three, we look at the complexity. And, you know, the, if you have familiarity with deck builders, I don't think this reinvents the wheel. Um, I like that there's complexity introduced by the bad guy, by the, the henchman that they're bringing along. There are some things that are like, okay, this game inserts this. Oh, we need to pick a vehicle. Like, there are some differences, but I don't think that anything that was tacked into the game. And when I say tacked in, I don't mean carelessly, like, oh, just throw it in. I mean beneficial additions to the system that were added for good reason. I don't think that any of them necessarily make the game more complex, more difficult to understand, so long as you're familiar with a deck builder. If you're not a gamer and you sit down to play this, I it's going to be it's going to be really hard, I think. But that yeah. said, for gamers, it's not going to come off as super complex. Somewhere midweight, somewhere midweight maybe. What do you think? Well, I'll say the game is not really that complex. But my biggest problem was dredging through the rule book, and that can be a little tough, but I'll, I'll get more on that later on. This is a deck builder. You pick up cards to modify and improve your deck mm -hmm. and make sure you don't flood your deck with useless cards. That will gum up the works. That's the whole thing. They do have a couple little added things that make it a little bit different that kind of add a little paprika and a little oregano to the uh, <laughs> deck building mix, but nothing that really changes the base recipe. I guess the things that are added, the uh, the need for deciding what vehicle you're going to use to go on a mission, which Joes you're going to pick, none of mm -hmm. these are complex decisions. Uh, however, I think that they add some extra thinking power requirements as you're playing the game. And then you factor in dice. We have a little bit of randomness with dice. In order to succeed in yeah. a mission, you, you got to pick the right guys, but you still have to roll. You still got to roll and get them hits, right? And you, you might, you might not. So you're starting to balance out, okay, uh, if we take these guys, we're going to get eight dice. We need four hits. Oh, I don't know. That's like 50-50. That's mm -hmm. where, like, that's not a complexity issue. That's a that's a brain power playing the game issue. That's, a, that's we'll say, a good kind of complexity where you're making decisions, not trying to understand mechanisms within the game. Does that make sense? That's a, that's a perfect way of putting it, really, truly. Now, I'm going to jump on the next one here, the rule book and the learning curve. Now Did we finally get to skewer one? I did go through the rule book, but I want to go through yours as far as the learning curve. What did you think of it playing the game? I think it really helped to have played a deck builder. Okay, so if you're familiar with Dominion and you want to learn how to play G.I. Joe deck building game, you just point to the person that's learning, right? The person mm -hmm. teaching just points to the star and says, okay, that's your purchasing power. And you go, okay, move on. And yeah. you're, you got it. You're done. Whereas if you don't understand it, what that means is all the cards have a cost up here. You add these up after playing your hand. You got to go through this big description of what it means. Now, 
Does that mean that somebody that has never played deck building games is going to have a hard time learning this? No, not necessarily. You play through a couple of hands and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. What I do like, and this isn't learning curve, we'll call this discovery curve, is that Mm -hmm. you never know what the next event is, like what the next trick up the bad guy's sleeve is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. maybe after a dozen plays, you can anticipate, okay, I know it's going to be this one or that one. You know what I mean? Like I, I can narrow down and play around that, but there's something really cool about, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And you have to adjust on the fly because the card you wanted just got covered by a batting. You don't have the firepower to remove it. Uh, I, I like that learning curve as far as understanding the game. It can be difficult, but if you're familiar with deck builders, it goes from on the more difficult to, uh, side to the more easy side of learning. Mm-hmm. Rulebook. Ske- uh, is this skewer away? Do we need to uh, do we need to put on put on the fire the flame retardant? Hold on here. <laughs> now this this is a little tough. I'm still going back to the rulebook at times to get those little rules here and there to make sure I have everything correct. Granted, I do get a little excitable at times and rush through things and don't read every last little page. But this one seemed you are to very make everything. Excitable. Oh, I know. But this one seemed to be very, <laughs> to make everything seem simple, but not logical. Okay. There were times whenever it would tell you how to do this. But then you're trying to figure out how to get from A to B, but they give you the rules on the idea of how to go to A to C. So you're trying to find out, put things together. It's almost like you're getting pieces of the map to the Lost Ark, trying to line them up here and then get aha moment. And then everything makes sense then. But yeah, I've watched a few videos just to kind of fine tune everything. I think I'm there, but still the difficulty of just getting into it and reading through it and getting everything. I just, there was just something that didn't make it like an enjoyable read. Not that rule books are really enjoyable to read, but you want to be able to get through it and have it flow logically mm-hmm. for you. So basically what you're saying, the rule book kind of gets in the way. It's not a very good rule book. That's a good way of saying it. I mean, there, I don't know the number of pages in the rule book, Oh, look at that! Twenty-three cover pages. Art. Man, the art in this game is great. Twenty-three. Woo. There's twenty-three. And eight pages of them are good. The other fifteen suck. You could easily <laughs> break this down to about an eight-page rule book. Easily. Hey, it happens. Rule book gets in the way. Got to watch a video. That means we're not going to give it a pass on the rule book. So be it. Let's move on. Bit number five. Exactly. The meat of the game. All right. The meat of the game for me is getting your team together quickly the missions in the game do not start out too difficult but man they do ramp up quickly not only you're trying to recover the pieces of the mass device but you're also trying to keep zartan at bay while you're being dusted by cobra fire bats and then there's a couple other complications oh by the way there are a couple of selections that you can't take because there's cobra battalions covering them up in the marketplace Mm -hmm. There's so many little things going on that you really need to be able to get in there, get in there quickly before the game gums things up for you. Before things start to spiral. Yeah. Now, what was your meat of the game? Well, it's a deck builder, so obviously crafting your deck to to the way that you want is, I mean, clearly, that's going to be in any deck building game is optimizing your deck. That said, you know, we're at a point now, and I think they knew when they made this, like, I said earlier, they didn't reinvent the wheel, what with the mechanisms right. within the game, and especially with the deck building. 
This is a game that's all about uh, putting out the fires, right? Disaster mitigation. Yes, yes. There were times where it's like, okay, we are ready to take on the baddie. And then a henchman comes up, blocks a card, and they have a more serious consequence if we don't deal with it immediately. Mm. Uh, it's constantly like, okay, you want it, you want to focus in one spot. And the game says, no, you got to handle this. You got to handle that first. You got to handle this first. Uh, there's, there's just some, some examples, right? Uh, that threat meter. You got to keep the threat meter in check. Battalions, mm -hmm. they block your recruit options. Uh, they can cause the Joes to lose the game. Troopers can clog your deck. Officers, some of the side effects of those officers. You mentioned Zartan. My goodness. Some of the side effects are disastrous. Uh, side missions. Oftentimes, like you said, mm -hmm. they need to be dealt with quickly because they can accelerate that meter. There's just, there's a lot of things to keep in check. And that's the fun of the game is trying to say, okay, which one are we going to go for? And which one are we able to go for with a, a high chance of succeeding? Man, that's right, fun. Right, yes. You can play it solo. It's fun. But I think it does shine whenever you have more people because you have the conversation of, well, I have this person, I have this person. I can take care of that. You take care of that one there. And you have those discussion as to what's going to be the best mission for you to go on. And then on top of that, you still have to see the dice roll in your favor. You got to mm -hmm. have things work out. Like there is there is a nice tension involved with going on those missions because, and I'm telling you, most of the time, if you fail, we'll say if you fail twice in the game, it's really, really hard to win. This isn't an easy game, is it? Oh, no, no, no. I in Whenever you do that, you have your, uh, if you win, you do this. If you lose, you do this. The bad thing about it is that if you win, the commander or whatever will go with that mission. It's gone. If you lose, well, that mission is gone. But that commander is still going to stick around there and just really mess up your day with the next mission that's going to come mm -hmm. up. So it makes it even more difficult. You really have to be very efficient at this game. Let's move on to bit number six, replayability, variability. Now, I understand that base box has two, two missions, which to me does, doesn't seem like a lot. And I know they have expansions, but I, I'm hoping that this isn't a game that you buy the base box and you immediately go, oh, I, I need to get expansions. I've seen it all. What do you think? Because I, I know you, you've expanded it, haven't you? Oh, my yes. Yes, I have. I mean, hey. Once again, we talked about it earlier. Renegade Games has a way of getting in my pants and getting my wallet out. So, yes, <laughs> I have expanded this. Replayability is there. As of this review, there are two expansions that add Serpentor and the Dreadnoughts. Now, this gives you six different missions to explore. Now, as mm -hmm. far as the variability goes, you have those six missions. Each mission has three parts. And each of these parts have five chapter cards, which you normally only use two of. So you're using two of those five cards for each chapter, and each part of the mission has three big parts of it. So, yeah, you don't need to go any further than the main game. I mean, you've got game there to last you a long time because you don't know what order the complications are going to come up. You don't know what order the marketplace is going to fill it up with what Joes and at what time. There's so yeah, many Yeah, one game you start off and you here. get the snowmobile in combination with, with a Joe that, that works well with it. The next game you see the helicopter, you see the submarine uh, mm -hmm. with a totally different lineup. And, and it changes the, com the complexion of the game when that happens. Oh, very much so. But it's just one of those things that whenever things line up, you get that much more excited for it. Like, oh, this is going to be awesome. 
thinking about that's basically out of the base box. You have those two main storylines that you're facing with. Mm-hmm. Now, each of the other expansions have two more storylines in each of those with let me, the same. Let me stop you for just a second. We played the base, right? You and I, when we were we playing, played the base. we played four times now, uh, but it's been over the span of, of, of several months. And I mm-hmm. want to say we did the base every time. Yes, yes. Okay. Now, I have done the other ones where you have ninjas going in and attacking G.I. Joe headquarters, them going out and getting all the DNA of the great leaders in the world and creating Serpentor. I haven't gone into mm-hmm. the, the new one yet, Cold Snap, where you have towable weapons, weather effects that come out and affect things. So you've got all these extra things that happen here. And now then they have another expansion that's coming out soon. If you read the comics at all, you know that G.I. Joe and Transformers teamed up there. And yeah, you can have Snake Eyes driving Ultra Magnus into a battle now. Oh, that's too much for me. Nope, I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> what? Not Scott, a Transformers you know what? Trans- No, anything with Transformers. Okay, there was that stupid movie. Okay, first of all, those movies, I can't even tell what the hell's going on in a Transformer film. They just make that click, 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 click. Like, they make that sound 38 <laughs> times. Michael Bay's obsessed with that sound and gears spinning mm-hmm. and slow motion car hitting another car. Oh, it's so dumb. But then they had the one giant robot, the giant Transformer thing, and it had balls. And I was like, okay, there's oh, there's yeah. literally no anatomical reason why this robot would have testicles. This uh, They lost me. They completely lost me. This is stupid as shit. And the cartoon. The cartoon was before, like, I was Ninja Turtles. I think I was, like, three years or four years too late for me to, as mm-hmm. a child, latch on to it. So Transformers, nostalgia does nothing for me. In fact, G.I. Joe, <laughs> the cartoon was slightly before me, but those right, little right. figures – those little figures, they those were still cool. By the time my little brother got into GI Joe, they had started to phase out the little ones. They went with the foot long, the the foot tall uh, GI okay, Joes, like the yeah, more yeah, lifelike, yeah, yeah. which are cool in their own right. They're very realistic, and and I like those. But they lost their playful attitude. Like you didn't have the ninja, you know, what I mean? you didn't have the guy with two giant guns. They were they were meant more to replicate actual soldiers. So it lost some of the charm to me. But yeah, no, they had those little blister packs when I was a kid. Love those. The yeah, little gum well, bands I in go, the middle, they'd always break and you'd, you'd have half a Joe laying around the house somewhere. Yeah, well, I go all the way back to the original 12-inch ones with, like, the Kung Fu grip and the eagle eyes. And then you would play with them in the pool for too long and then his hair would start falling out. It was a horrible, <laughs> horrible look for him. <laughs> uh, you got anything else on replayability variability? That is it. So that leads us right into downside. Let me hit this one here real quick, and then I'm interested to hear what you have to say. So, as I said above, the biggest downside to me is the inconsistent artwork. It would be great if they had all the artwork taken from just the interior of the comics, just the exterior of the comics, or just screenshots from the cartoon. But I don't know what went on behind Mm -hmm. the scenes as far as rights goes with who owns what, who owns this, who owns that, or anything like that at all. But that's my biggest complaint. But then there's another part of this that I didn't really go into. This game is a little bit of a bear to set up. Because Uh, unlike other deck builders, you have the marketplace. So you have your big deck of cards. Mm -hmm. You lay out your six cards. Boom. Done. You have your starter hands that you each play with. Okay. Done. You also have your own leader that you put in your starter deck. You got your leader and the upgrade. And then they're upgradable one. 
Then you have the missions that you have to put together with six or nine carts put together to put together the whole story. Complications, Cobra soldiers. Then you have the Cobra battalions. And then you have the track showing how far up the track you're going before you lose. Plus getting out the two little markers to mark down which ones you have won, which ones you have lost. Get the dice out and then you're ready to play. Just setting up that mission deck, that alone, listening to you describe that, that gives me flashbacks of Legendary Predator, the uh, the mm. Ultra Pro, uh, the Legendary Predator deck building game, which was equally thematic. Artworks, like it, they're, they're, this reminded me of playing that. And one of the big differences is I never had to set up G.I. Joe. You always had to do this setup because, you know, it's your game. You're yeah. the teacher and whatnot. Whereas Predator, I had to learn it. I had to set that one up. I had to teach it and like... It was a disaster. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I liked it, but I never did more than the intro mission. You could play Predator mm-hmm. 2. You could play Aliens versus Predator. You, or you could do Predator versus the, the the main guys if somebody wanted to play. They, they had all these ways to play. And you know what it made for? It made for a box with a whole bunch of organization slots with cards in each one that I did not want to, once it was organized, I didn't want to take them back out because it's like, this is going to take me half an hour to put away. A little, I feel little the shade same. of that going on here. A, a little bit, uh, but I I agree with you on that. That I had the alien version of that, and it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I've played it a few times, but I haven't played it in the longest time because of my unwillingness to sit down and sort out all the cards that I need to make sure that I have everything in a place that needs to be. And then once you play, you play it, and then you're done in 45 minutes. It's like, was the setup really worth that 45 minutes? Now, in the case of G.I. Joe deck building game, we're going to say that the setup is a bear, but I do think it's worth it. You know, we're, we're doing callbacks yes. to the legendary system, and we did not like it there, but it's not as bad here. There is still, just notably, there is still setup that you got to be aware of going in. I'll hit you with a downside that I can't believe you didn't mention, that rule book. Mm, I didn't well, even see I, it. I, I all I've ever about heard it. about it is that it's a... Well, okay, fair enough. We already put it down enough. Uh, if I had to throw something in, I would say that, that you know, no matter how well you prepare, there are going to be times where you need three hits, right? And the dice are 50-50. Mm-hmm. It's blank, 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 one hit, one hit, two hits. Those are the faces yes. on those D6s. There's going to be a time where lunar alignment's there. Okay, we need three hits. We got 12 mm. dice. Mm, we got this. And you just... <laughs> roll crap you know what though it makes for a cinematic moment there there's a part of me that likes that but if you're the type that like you know that variance just drives you bonkers it's in here oh yeah most definitely you do that and it's just like it gets you down and you're like oh that was horrible that mission's gone now that one's done and you moved on to the next Mm -hmm. one because cobra has won that part of the battle just like yeah it's pass fail you fail it it's done You know what, though? That can make for a fun moment because a lot of games and gamers, I think, have voiced, oh, we like to be able to calculate and have a a surefire thing. If I need a four, then let my cards equal out to five so that I know that I've won. You know, we like having known information, but that Mm -hmm. removes tension. And by having that bit of randomness in this one, rolling the dice and still needing to see that they worked out, that's that's where you get your stand-up moment. Nobody's standing up because they had five resources when they needed four. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I did it. Great. Go you. You know what I mean? That, that's what makes a story. That's what gets you into the comic, but that's what gets you immersed in the game. It almost sounds like this is one of those things that you would have down for, was it fun? 
Yes. Was it fun? And who's a four bit number eight? Bringing it on home. I know you got more to say than I do. Uh, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. This is absolutely fun. I could not believe it was as thematic as it was. And I am not the biggest G.I. Joe fan. I got nothing against him. I just, you know, I was a Ninja Turtle kid, whatever. But I know of G.I. Joe. I see some of the names and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. That's Duke, right? And then some of them I see the name and I'm like, I don't remember that one. I, I don't remember this one very much. You know, like if I didn't have the toy, I probably didn't didn't remember it. But mm-hmm. it was a thematic game that was a lot of fun. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Games are done right. in like an hour or less. I appreciate that that for what the game is who's it for you know what if you're not a fan of gi joe if you didn't have the toys if you can't get lost in the theme and appreciate the fun artwork it's probably one that you could move on from because it doesn't reinvent the wheel but you like a good deck building game and the theme is is even tickling you oh so slightly you're gonna like gi joe deck building game i'll leave it at that scott you get the final words on this one was it fun? Who's it for? Well, yes, it is fun. I truly enjoyed it. Um, if anything, this is, like you said, this is a game for fans of G.I. Joe, which I am one. Uh, this is not one that I think will appeal to those that have no interest in the IP, but like deck builders. Yeah, they like deck builders, they're going to play it, but I don't think the theme is going to stick with them. They're just going to be It's like, going to lose the magic. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. But I could definitely say if if you have friends that know that knowing is half the battle, this is the game there for them. Is. Yes. Okay. Whew. But uh, the thing that's really cool, though, is that Renegade Games had just dumped it on here that they did G.I. Joe, the deck building game, Transformers, the deck building game, Power Rangers, the deck building game. None of them are the same. It's not like they took the same mechanics and threw them all together. Each one of them is completely different. So if you are a fan of any of those IPs, you can jump in and get a whole different game experience by playing those. If I can interject, you left one out. You left the best one out. Oh? Friendship is Magic. Oh. Rainbow Dash, Twilight Sparkle. Oh, Oh, I guess I did. (laughs) I did. You know what? That'll be for a follow-up episode. We'll, we'll, we'll oh, get to that oh, one in yep. a couple episodes. Hey, I'm down to play it. I'm definitely down to play it. Well, Scott, it's been one year ago since we had Andrew, Archmage Andrew, on the show joining us for an episode, and our review that day was Destinies. This is a story-driven game that uses a companion app without the need for a game master. So you got all these little minis moving around cards on the board, much like a Tainted Grail. The map's built as you go from BGG. Each scenario depicts a part of a vivid world full of dark stories, epic NPCs, and mysteries to solve. Each player takes the role of a hero on a quest to fulfill their destiny. Each destiny is a final goal of the character, and they have at least two each. Completely different paths to victory, in fact, composed of branching series of quests. Players compete with each other to push the world towards its own destiny. Scott, looking back, Destinies, this this was an interesting one, wasn't it? It it most certainly was. It was very cool how you played it. Uh, You had the app telling you what was happening around you. It was kind of like having your own little DM in a phone. 
and going through and you're mm-hmm. doing this and you're doing that and you're exploring this burnout church. But then that's where it kind of lost me a little bit because it seemed more like the old read a book, uh, the the record and books you used to get, well, I used to get as a kid. Like the Create Your Own Adventures? Well, no, they would go through and they you would read the book and it go, bing, turn the page. Oh, da, 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 da. bing, turn the page. Wait, this was just, a thing? What, you would turn on a cassette? Oh, a, a little 45 you would play. I had a, okay. oh God, I had a Star Trek one with weird little mouse looking things that would squeal and everything. Oh, I remember that thing so well. Oh, so it would like give you ambiance and sound effects as you were oh, reading? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, what yep. if you're a slow reader or a quick reader? Well, it, it would just take you through it. Yeah. You can't force drama, Patrick. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but that's what I got from this because it just seemed like you weren't really making decisions. You were just kind of following what was seemed to be the best route for you to go in. Okay, so, so it, it, it kind like of lost it's on it rails. Away from me. Yes, yes. Like it's on and and we should we should clarify that term on rails uh, as in when you have an open world story game. One of the complaints that people give sometimes is, oh, if the story felt like it was on rails, uh, just like a train. If you're in a car, you can turn and go wherever you want. You're in a train, you're going in the direction that it's meant to go. And there was a bit of that. You can make your own decisions, but ultimately your success in the game depends on if you're following the path that the game is trying to dictate that players go based on the scenario, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I got out of it. What were your thoughts on it? Well... I enjoyed playing it for what it was. It was, it's neat. It's unique. You know, I like that the app was, was interactive in a way that was not intrusive. However, I think that for every bit of storytelling neatness, for every bit that it was like giving me the wow factor in that department, it was giving me the uh, factor in the gameplay department. Mm. The decisions weren't very meaty. They weren't calculative. They weren't competitive. It was like, well, I guess I'll do this. And then I see what happens. Maybe it worked out. Maybe it didn't. And whether or not I love just being a part of the story is going to be the the determining factor in whether or not I love the game. Ultimately, Scott, looking back a year later, this game has a ton of expansions. So it's going to be really hard for me to say, like, uh, I don't recommend it. It's apparently a beloved game. You know, they keep making expansion well, yeah, sports. So yeah. It has a crowd. And I think, I don't want to say most, but clearly a lot of gamers love it. I didn't. Uh, yeah, I haven't revisited it. I have no desire to go for an expansion. It's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, it's one I think if I was someplace and someone said, hey, do you want to play Destinies? If I had nothing planned, I might sit down, give it a try and revisit it that way. But I'm not going to go out of my way to actually go out, get a copy of it just to revisit it. Nor I. So a year later, sounds like we're putting a damper on this one. If we had a positive review last year, it's tapered off a little bit. Just a little. What? More work? All right. Time to polish this dude. Scrub, scrub, rub, rub, zub, zub. Welcome, folks. Today, The Hungry Gamer is back with another episode of Polishing the Turd. And today, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite dungeon crawl games that just took me a while to get into it. And that is Dungeon Alliance. Now, 
if you're not familiar with it, this is bar none the most Euro dungeon crawler out there. Period. Don't come at me with Gloomhaven, because you're wrong. Dungeon Alliance is definitely the most Euro, the least randomness, the most puzzly. And that's not me slagging off Gloomhaven. It's just this one is more. Now, to the point, when I first got this, I was excited about this idea of building this four-character Dungeon Alliance, sending it down to the dungeon and kind of pursuing these objectives and you're trying to get the most victory points while you're down there or a certain number of victory points while you're down there before four rounds are up. So each of your characters only activates four times. But as you're doing it, you are doing deck building. And you will always know with the exception of a few cards you can buy, exactly how much damage you're going to do and exactly how much damage you need to do to kill one of the enemies. And you're even going to know exactly what enemies are going to activate. All of that is a known entity, again, with a few exceptions. There's a few monsters that will roll a die and add something. But for the most part, you know what's going to happen. So it's all about planning and the puzzle. And so all of that was very exciting to me. However, on my first play, we were just meh. Is fine. We were lukewarm. And we were lukewarm because it's a light story game that you're kind of putting together your own narrative, but it just didn't really hold up. The game was slow, it was long, and it was just fine. So fast forward a year or so, and this was before I'd started regularly culling games, and I went ahead and I backed the new stuff, which came with an expansion that I didn't have, and these little adventure packs, little story packs. And let me tell you, this took this game from a game that was fine, that was only on my shelf still because it's a relatively small box, to top two or three dungeon crawls for me. Because what it does is, it takes your game and it adds a story outline to it. It tells you why you're going into these dungeons, what you're doing while you're in there. And it gives you these extra choices that you're making because now instead of just buying a card you're going to bring into your deck, you're going to buy a story card perhaps. And that story card, you're going to have to maybe wait a few turns before it actually turns into something that you can use, or it's going to turn into the ability for you to buy cards you're going to carry over between different quests. Because the other thing it does is it creates these four game campaigns that you're playing through, and it just really, really works. And so what has happened with Dungeon Alliance for me is it's a game that is not a perfect game. It's still a long game. You just have to know that it's a long game. But it's one that, if you're looking for that really thoughtful Euro game that's a dungeon adventure, it just works. As long as you go and know, okay, it's a longer game, and you're going to use one of those adventure packs, which is just going to add some flavor, add some story, and more importantly, add what feels like an end goal. Because originally, you're just going in just kind of gaining points, and it just felt unsatisfying. But if you have these things, suddenly you have this agency and stakes and it is just super exciting then if you add into that the other expansion which makes the opportunity for you to kind of go even deeper into the dungeon and have this huge epic battle against whatever your final boss is it's just amazing in fact as a solo or two-player cooperative game i can't think of many that if i'm in the mood for a longer game that i would want to play now, that said, I don't know that I recommend the game as a competitive game, if that's the only way you're going to play, and if you're going to be playing at three or four players, then you really got to be in for the long haul. But this is just a game that I think 
with just those little extra details, those little extra expansions has gone from ho-hum to wow. Oh, it sounds like there was a bit of an outbreak over at the unicorn stables. And we all know how Archmage Andrew likes his sparkly stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the criticisms that I have with Gloomhaven, it is a very Euro-y dungeon crawler, but my biggest criticism is I want to know ahead of time. I hate, hate that you flip the card for the enemy after you've made your decisions. I honestly, personally, I think it's a way better game when you get to know in advance. So when I'm playing Gloomhaven, and I've played the entire first, well, all of Gloomhaven, I guess. It's not the first Gloomhaven. It is Gloomhaven. Frosthaven's been on the table. Uh, more on that next episode. But Gloomhaven, I finished. And for me, it's a better game when you know what the baddies are going to do. You should be able to plan accordingly. If all the game, you're being able to like, if the game markets itself as the Euro game dungeon crawler where you're able to see what's going to happen and play your cards accordingly, I hate that the one random area, the one, the one random area is so random. It's worse. I'd rather have to roll dice for my attacks. I'd rather every card that I play to attack had me rolling dice to deal damage. I hate, hate not being able to see what the bad guys are going to do. In fact, uh, as I said, when I play, I flip those up ahead of time before making my decisions because it makes the game even more interesting in my opinion. Still a very challenging game. It doesn't make it uh, significantly easier, but you're not going to like play for an hour and get right down to the, to the razor's edge and lose because you flipped up the card that says like they're immune this turn or they take three, they, they shoot and move three steps back. And suddenly not only are you like, oh man, I can't hit them, but like your movement card that you were going to use, it's like, okay, that's a dud. I was going to use my card that went hit, then move, then hit. And I was going to hit him, then move to the side and then hit him again. And now I can't. These two cards that I had this perfect plan with, suddenly now, not only is it like one of them is kind of useless, they're both kind of useless. I can use one to move and one to hit once. Oh, and I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Well, that's part of the gameplay path. That's what makes it so good. For you, sure. For me, no. So it's kind of nice to hear Will uh, finding a game that's a uh, dungeon crawl that is even more Euro-y. And I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to play it, and I'd like to see how it stacks against another notorious Euro dungeon crawler, Perdition's Mouth, from our friends at Dragon Dawn Productions. Will, by the way, has just passed 5,100 subscribers on YouTube. If you don't follow The Hungry Gamer, I'm telling you what, the dude has a passion for games that is second to none. Big congratulations to Will. He's got a contest going up by the time you're hearing this. I think it's still live. He's got a giveaway sponsored by Chip Theory Games. So if you don't follow the Hungry Gamer Will Brown, get on over to YouTube. Look up Hungry Gamer. His reviews are excellent. Hey, adventures on the horizon, the magical land of checking out games that aren't available just yet. This time, I wanted to commandeer the last portion of the episode to talk about one that went live on Kickstarter two days ago on March 7th called Inaros Fallen, Y-N-A-R-O-S Fallen. Yes, without the G, it's Fallen. Uh, Inaros Fallen. Now, this is a heads-up, one-on-one, dudes-on-a-board duel from Peak 
Gatwick Dreams, designed by Luca Sanfilippo and Hugo Tomasello. To start out the game, you've got a main board where players place their minis and where the interactions are going to be taking place, like on magical land spots, gathering crystals, and occasionally trading blows with the opponent. You've got your player board, which houses the magic land that you conquer. Plus, you get a battle board, where the combat's going to be resolved through card play and sort of a tug-of-war, but not really tug-of-war, push-of-war. You're trying to push them off the other side, push them further away from you. Now, the setup from one game to the next can vary slightly based on how much complexity you want to introduce. Namely, this rulebook has a few different setup options, basically starting from an intro game to the complete game. But typically, you're going to have access to a number of followers on your side of the board, a hand of cards, and dice, which are neatly in your player color. So we're navigating through these wild lands and harnessing power, trying to become the wisest shaman in the land. We do this by either having the most experience points at the end of play, or basically knocking out the other guy's minis or vital stones. Victory by force, if you will. On a turn, you're going to get to do a few things, across four phases, starting with the deeds phase, where you get to pick two actions from a menu of four. And I know that that sounds like a lot, just know that your turn mostly is going to be picking two actions to do. And among those actions, you can draw new cards, play cards, move pieces, or take control of a space on the board. Then in the next phase, you resolve any consequences or benefits of your movement and your actions. Then you reduce the score of your shadow die by one. And the shadow die, I should clarify, has the numbers two through seven. It's basically going to dictate how much movement you have on a turn. You can use it on one guy or you can split it across multiples. It ticks down one every turn, but you can play any card from your hand to increase it back up. Back and forth we go with two primary objectives in mind, either controlling magical lands or winning combat, defeating your opponent. Magical lands. Okay, so what's going on there? These are pretty simple. You activate them from one spot and then you move on them and you conquer them so long as you meet its prerequisites. Typically, it's something that's easy to understand, like having X number or higher on your shadow die, for example. That magic land piece is kind of like a long skinny number eight or uh, uh, maybe a Mr. Peanut shaped tile. There you go. Uh, and it actually uh, like slots into the side of your player board, providing magical crystals to convert into experience points, which again, experience points can win you the game. Note that some magic lands stay on the board and they're basically areas of interest where you're going to be like jockeying for control. They give you like a one-time benefit. Other ones you actually take on your player board and it gives you static ability. It actually makes for some interesting decisions as to whether you want to like play King of the Hill for one of the red magic lands or stick with green and orange spaces for that, that long-term payoff. Now, battle. A magic battle is going to take place when two characters are on the same space, and it's resolved using the cards that you have in hand, plus you can spend crystals. Now, let's point out here, the cards in hand are simply a player color, or the others, or the other player color, or both. So don't think that you're going to have to remember a ton of card symbols or read a bunch of text. It's that simple. In battle, two characters placed next to each other on that battle board, they're going to be trying to push each other off of the opposite edge, basically. In the process, both players are going to be scoring victory points through the cards and the crystals that they utilize, but the winner of the combat is going to get some additional experience, plus the loser, they got to move their pieces back to the starting spaces of the main board. Gameplay continues until an endgame condition has been met, filling your six-player slots on your board with magical lands that you've conquered, or someone loses all of their vital stones, or their characters through combat, or three piles of magic lands have been depleted. At that point, each player is going to tally their experience, and the high score 
is the winner. So that's what's going on on the board. Let's get into some thoughts. And I'm going to begin by saying that while this game was provided to us, it was a prototype copy and we have to forward it to the next reviewer. So effectively, we get nothing out of this review except for the opportunity to try the game before it's widely available, which you know, that's kind of cool. That's a thing. That's part of the reason that we do this and a lot of the fun that we get out of it. So take my thoughts as you will. Let's start here. Components are great. Typically, when we get a prototype, the adventures, these things come in a range. So one of the things before doing this that I always wondered, you know, I'm listening to these podcasts and they're talking about a game that's not even out yet. And I'm like, Okay, so what, what are they playing? Oftentimes, they're playing on Tabletop Simulator. They're playing a, a, a digital version of the game that's meant to look like what they're going to get. But sometimes, you get shipped a prototype. I'm telling you what. We've seen prototypes that were like stickers and, and pen on cards to like put in the modifications. Uh, it kind of feels like it was printed out. We've seen prototypes where like there are minis in there. Probably not production quality minis, but there's minis. And this had a very nice prototype. And typically, when you get a good prototype, it means that the actual production of the game, when we've seen this before, the actual production ends up being something very good. So the components are great. There's inset spots on the game board. Like you fold out the board, there are like inserted slots on that board. There's slots on player boards and dude, those minis, the, the way that you know the difference between a follower and a shaman in the game is by a little face mask and you just, you click them on them. Very nice. We got the game with the Dark Adventures expansion as well, which adds a couple more setup scenarios as well as a fully fleshed out solo mode. And when I was recording this, I did a little extra research. Turns out uh, this was a heads up, you know, I described it as a heads up game. Now they've got a solo mode and they are going to be incorporating a four player version, whether that means like teams 2v2 or if it means that they're going to have a board that uh, that's going to house four players i don't know yet but you know what the the uh, the kickstarter's live so i'm going to give you some homework get on over there and give it a look and we can find out the gameplay that's what it's all about we've got a dual game on a board kind of in the vein of like a wildlands unmatched god tier that sort of thing i think where anaro's fallen succeeds is that it seems more gameplay forward than some of the others uh, and what I mean by that, oftentimes I think with these, I think oftentimes with these battler type games, the focus tends to be on neat miniatures and like where your guy's facing. Gameplay, on the other hand, it, it feels like it gets watered down to very simple card play. Uh, take Unmatched, for example. Uh, the game is remarkably simple. You get rid of the washed minis, it's still a decent game. I like Unmatched just fine, but since we reviewed it, it's not one that I've, I, I, now that I think about it, I haven't played it since. Oftentimes, these battler games don't have enough going on the board, not enough to interact with. I mentioned Wildlands. It, there's crystals on the board. They use a little bit with elevation. Unmatched uses a little bit with the different color areas. But Yanaro's Fallen flips that script. They've got the magical land spaces that give you a lot of benefits. It, it adds a bunch of gameplay on top of it in the form of gaining crystals with your lands, converting them into points. You get points off the board. I like that. I like that you're going to find moments of the game where you got to make a decision about short-term gain versus a long-term plan. Like in the example that I gave before about red magic lands where you get that one-off punch and it's usually something good, but it's going to get stolen from you. You're not going to be able to hold it the whole game. 
On the other hand, you can conquer some of the slightly weaker green or orange. You're going to avoid some conflict. You can hopefully uh, uh, dip back into that well a few times, get your gains in other areas. I like that decision. I like that the cards are simple. The cards are straightforward. This isn't a card play game. Um, and it, while I'm not comparing it with Unmatched, it's just an easy one that I think a lot of you have played. Unmatched, you've got the hand of cards. you got to read them out, figure out what's going on. And, and that's where a lot of the gameplay takes place. Okay, you know, my mini's here. What does my card do? This isn't a card game. It is not a card game. The cards only have the two colors. They're intuitive. Their application in the game, that being combat or modifying your die, that makes their use really easy, which in turn means that you can focus on the gameplay on the board. All in all, there's a lot to like here, and it far outweighs any complaints. That said, especially with previews, we like to point out what we might not like. So, without further dudes, the main thing I want to point out is that there are a healthy handful of gameplay setups that you can play, which is a long-term upside. But in the short term, it means that if you're rotating who you're playing with, like, or if you if you don't revisit games often, like you have your game day, you play a game, and it sits on the shelf for six months because you got so many other games you want to play over the span of the next five months you're probably going to be playing that intro scenario a lot. Or it's going to be best to play with the same couple of people because you're all up to speed from the last time you played. You're ready to play that third level. Also, this isn't a downside really, and, and sometimes this can be super exciting, but some folks take pause upon finding this out. This is the first design for Hugo and Luca. Uh, a lot of folks are turned off by that. I see a lot of comments like, oh, I, I held off on backing because it's the first design by these guys. I wanted to see how it turned out. But you know what? Ark Nova was the first design for Matthias Wei. That was his first one. Beyond the Sun was the first one for Dennis Shades. Everybody's got to start off somewhere. I understand taking pause because usually your first design isn't your best. But that's the design that they had their whole life to work on. That's the one that they stepped out of the box and took a risk and decided to make a game about. To me, I think first design is kind of an exciting thing. Sometimes it turns into a dud. Oftentimes you get something like Arc Nova. Basically, I don't let that bother me, but this is their first design. Having said all that, get on over to Kickstarter. Check this one out. Went live March 7th. The world of the game is interesting, the components are excellent, but most importantly, the gameplay's fun and challenging. Until next time, adventurers, this has been Adventures on the Horizon. Well, I've been waiting to hear that sound because it means I can catch my breath. Adventures has been a lot of fun being able to go solo, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Next week, uh, we will have Scott back. And as I said, with this year, this season of the podcast, we will be doing a lot more of having uh, having the co-hosts on. We've had Ryan a few times. I want to get Will and Andrew on. Josh has been with us, and, and I look forward to doing that some more. We've got some great reviews planned. In the meanwhile, I... I, I I would feel remiss if I didn't finish with how I leveled up. And it's not the same not being able to tell Scott this, because it feels like that's kind of our, our, our keeping tabs on each other. But you know what? You out there, may, you know, maybe it's it's fun. You look forward to this. I don't know. But for me, my level up was uh, one of the guys at the local shop. He wanted to learn how to play Twilight Imperium. He had a copy, and he wanted to learn it. And uh, as you may know, that's my favorite game. I absolutely love playing this one. And I said, ah, yeah, I'm so in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach how to play well it was going to be me playing i wanted to play but it was just happened to fall on a weekend where i had sarah with my mom i mentioned earlier that i played uh, i played nemesis over my brothers i had a game day on saturday with my brother and my buddy mike i was scheduled to play 
Twilight Imperium with this new gang at the shop on Sunday. He was, you know, he opened the shop early, took the coffee, and the, the problem was I had my daughter with my mom all day Saturday, and it's a big ask to have her do the same thing on Sunday. So I told her, you know what, I'm going to pick her up early afternoon. So we all got to the shop, and we set up, and I said, you know what, I can't play. I don't have the time to play, but I got to teach. And as actually, you know what, I let me let me backpedal a second. I did get to play with Sardek. I was playing Sardek Noor. Uh, I got to play with Sardek Noor for a round. One guy was late, and he's a guy that's semi-familiar with the game, and I know him. He's a gamer. I knew he'd pick it up pretty easily. So he came in like midway through round one, so he got to see how it played. And I hung out for round two and kind of coached through the turn and made sure everybody was doing everything. And, and just it's so nice to to share one of your favorite things. Uh, for me, my, you know, the experience of playing Twilight Imperium, it's so exciting to me, and it's so much fun to get a group of people that you don't know. I, I knew two of these people. I didn't know the other four. And see their faces light up and, and some of the things they're doing, the interactions. And, you know, it's like halfway through round two and one guy's like, wait, how many factions are in this game? Uh, 17 in the base game. They're, oh, whoa. And you see somebody else flipping through them. Like you can tell the gears are going. They're already going for the next one. Such a fun time being able to teach it. Adventures, share the love of the hobby. It's so delightful. That's my level up for episode 88. Also, Adventures, episode 86, we talk about Kyperium, which is live on Kickstarter. It has funded. Ryan and I talk all about the game with the designers Steve and Matt. Ryan's a backer. I'm a backer. I can't recommend this game enough. It's a ton of fun. Thank you so much. I hope you had a great time today. I know I sure did. Until next time, Scott, you got the last word. Renegade Games has a way of getting in my pants. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.